Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Today's conversation is about architecture and the design of buildings that continue to reshape Toronto's city skyline. With the booming local economy and the emergence of new architectural trends, there are plenty of opportunities for great design, but often met with significant challenges, giving architects plenty to think about as they relentlessly strive to satisfy the interests of their clients, the city, and the general public. To learn more about this topic, I'm joined by Richard Witt. Executive Principal at Quadrangle, a full-service architecture and interior design firm based in Toronto. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Before we get into talking about architecture, I, I want to briefly talk about the profession itself. And I got to imagine that most architects in Toronto are being kept extremely busy as we continue to ride this phenomenally successful building boom that has been going on for a very long time and which shows little sign of slowing down. So how has a firm like Quadrangle grown over the years in response to all this booming activity? And how has it evolved to keep up with the times? The, the profession of, uh, of architecture is always a, a funny one in, in the media. Uh, I should start off by saying, um, as, as any of my friends will know, because I've told them, uh, architect is constantly voted as the sexiest male profession. <laughs> so uh, it attracts a, you know, a certain kind of, uh, of proponent. The, um, and it's also, you know, in, in the media, it's always, uh, so many people always say to me, oh, I always really wanted to be an architect, or you know, George Costanza, if any of you watch Seinfeld, uh, always wanted to be the architect. Well, why be an architect when you can be an urban planner, right? <laughs> well, that's because if any, nobody knows what architects do is, is part of the answer to that question, but nobody, even, even less people know what urban planners do. Um, uh, the architecture profession, I think, has a, is, a, is a great one and has a, has a fantastic responsibility and an opportunity to shape the cities and the ways that people inhabit the cities and enjoy them. Um, the Quadrangle uh, has been around for just over 30 years. Hmm. We're, a, we're quite a big firm now. Uh, when I first started, we were only 25 people. That was in the mid-90s. Uh, now uh, we're 180 people. So it's a, it's a very different place. And the profession as well has changed quite a bit during during that period. It's It's been a very busy time in Toronto uh, during that period. But you know, as they say, the only thing worse is the alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but it's, it's been a great years actually in the, you know, the rest of the world uh, has seen a massive recession, which in Toronto we have, you know, barely noticed. So, so. you're counting your blessings. I'm definitely counting my blessings. Actually, I, w- I worked uh, in London until um, just at the beginning of 2002. And when I when I left to come back to, to Toronto, uh, somebody I worked with said, oh, no, never go to Toronto. It's like an old sock under the couch. Every so often the dog has a little play with it and then drops it and forgets about it. Nothing's ever going to happen in Toronto. Uh, he's no longer in London. Uh, he is uh, he's in New York, in uh, Hong Kong now. So, so okay, so, it's, so that's how you've evolved. You basically responded to the growth in the industry um, you went from 25 people to 180 people. And um, how does that impact the ability for um, you as a team to continue to push the envelope and to deliver first-rate um, creative thinking, especially given the pace of 
uh, buildings that are being announced and the demands placed on on uh, by developers to get those buildings up as soon as possible. Well, the um, the uh, every it's 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 pretty easy for everyone who's lived in Toronto the past twenty years to to appear to be a genius in the real estate world. I mean, I, if I had a time machine, I would go back and mm-hmm. I would I would be buying a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having said that, we d- we did make a plan. So we 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 made a plan for growth. You know, we've we've been fortunate uh, with the growth that we've had, but we made a plan not knowing how much growth there would be to grow and uh, to be able to respond to what we saw uh, would be a changing market. So the the whole city has evolved fantastically over the past 20 years. Um, it's a it's a completely different city than it was when that when that old sock was under the couch. And I I'm glad to have been here during that time. <laughs> And what about the talent then? Do you do you find that you're constantly chasing after um, good talent, uh, and that all the firms are looking for talent, or is there still an abundance of um, highly talented architects to draw from? There, the, yeah, talent has actually been our, our biggest challenge over the past uh, past year or two. Uh, the you know we've we've grown a lot and. Lots of other firms in the city have grown uh, as well. I don't know if they've grown as much as us, but uh, a lot of other firms have grown. Uh, the city's been very busy. Um, the inf- there's a huge influx of people. The real estate industry's been booming. Uh, that's been exacerbated by the fact that there was a huge recession in the 90s during which uh, a lot of architects left the profession. So we have, um, you know, we, we we are lucky to have some some very good senior people, uh, but it's it's been hard to find good senior people uh, of a certain age, um, my age, very young, um, to you know to come and come and join the firm. Uh, but we we've got some gr- some great people that have come, uh, but it's it's a constant challenge for us. And probably uh, we devote more of our attention un- under any of our activities to people, talent, keeping people happy, uh, bringing in new people, the right kind of people as well, um, and training people to to work properly. So let's get into the buildings themselves. Um, and I, I I want to um, just talk about the quality of, of buildings and some of the criticisms that are out there of some of the buildings that are going up. Um, one of the sites, websites I like to go to very often is a site called Urban Toronto, which is uh, an excellent site for getting the latest on new projects that are being announced and even um, uh, sort of a progress report on how, the, how those buildings are, are moving along. And at the bottom of those website pages, we are often comments from either members or non-members about, you know, the, just another boring glass building or another gray building. And so there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of, everyone has their own opinion. And even I'm, um, it's not just the readers uh, of Urban Toronto, but sometimes from architects themselves. And I'm reminded of uh, an article uh, in the National Post a few years ago uh, where they interviewed Peter Clues, who um, heads up a Toronto-based uh, Architects Alliance. And he said that he liked maybe 20% of the condo buildings that they've worked on. He was actually quite disappointed. He said he worries about condos in general and how they're being built in Toronto and what it will mean for the city if things don't change soon. And in his eyes, many of the towers popping up in the core, he said, are depressingly similar. Now, in his defense, he he was of the opinion that the real villain in all this is the city and the city and um, uh, the the, the codes that they apply to to the buildings. Um, so he would say they codify what a building should be as opposed to what a city should be. 
And when you codify, you get a lot of buildings that look an awful lot the same. So when I read that article, I, I, I really had a greater appreciation of the tension between architects who are interested in the design, um, the developers who are ultimately interested in the profit, and the planners, the city staff who are, who are really fixated on code and regulation and, and, the, and the public benefit. So with all that in mind, what are your thoughts on all this, specifically about the quality of, of buildings going up? Well, I think it's very <clears throat> it's very easy and very common for um, for people to uh, place the blame for things on others. Um, the you know you know speaking specifically about uh, that that comment about not being happy with those projects, um, Clues enjoyed a significant amount of prestige through the past twenty years, um, and I think probably more than most had an opportunity to show the kind of leadership that that we should have shown. Um, which could have overcome uh, a lot of the troubles which he's pointing to. So the, what, what it comes down to is most of the development that we've seen in Toronto over the past 20 years has been residential development. Residential development is an economically driven uh, proposition and it's, um, and it's also of its time. So we, we look and we say all these things are the same, but you go to any city and you say all these things are the same. If you came to Toronto in the early 1900s, you would have said, all these buildings look the same. They're all brick, single-family houses. If you go to Paris and whenever they they built those, when the Hausmann Boulevards were created, all those buildings look the same. So it's not, it's not anything different. It's just that we're going through a boom. Everything shouldn't look different. In fact, um, the fabric of buildings should be consistent for fabric buildings. You don't want every building to stand out and shout and say, "Hey, look at me." Mm-hmm. The real problem for me is the performance of the buildings that we've put up. So it's not that they look the same. In fact, some of them look look reasonably nice. Some of them look less nice. They, there's a very uh, narrow band of what we would say that's a good building and that's a that's a not good building. I would say they're all very similar, and and because of the economics of the systems that we use. But what about the performance of them? The fact that all of these buildings, uh, which we've put up and we say, oh yes, we've got uh, R20 walls, these are good buildings, these are sustainable buildings, They're, you know, they have an effective R value of two. Um, I'm part of an organization, as, as you might know, uh, Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat, that did a study about sustainability and tall buildings. And tall buildings are often touted as being more sustainable than low rise. Their study uh, indicated that actually the sustainability performance of the buildings that we're putting up now are worse than the ones that we did in the 60s. And that's because of the systems that we're using. And it's really, uh, I mean, everybody pays a part, but it's really up to architects as much as anybody else in the in the industry to show leadership and to draw the line on what we should and shouldn't do and to be creative about if that's the system, how do we use the system in a way that's not just satisfying the lowest common denominator. I see. So do you, are you saying that architects need to, to push the envelope above these base standards uh, to achieve greater... I'm thinking that you can't say, you know, the, <clears throat> it's often been said architects aren't designing buildings. Window wall manufacturers are designing buildings, and that's, that's substantially true the same way as, <clears throat> like I say, in the early 1900s, brick manufacturers were, were you know, were design, dictating what the aesthetic of the buildings are. But you can't then turn around and say, well, I was being forced into that. You, everybody has their own responsibility to push an agenda of sustainability. So what about the, the glass buildings that we see so much of? I mean, if, you, if a visitor were to come to the city or anybody coming downtown, especially into the south core, let's say you're driving along the Gardner Expressway and you see all of these 
uh, tall glass buildings that I think for a casual observer would say, oh, they all look kind of the same. And even if you were to stand on the rooftop of some, um, you know, lounge, hotel, um, somewhere in downtown Toronto and, and look across, you would see a lot of these glass towers. I'm wondering, is, is, this, is this kind of a Toronto look or is this, this a look that we see repeated in other similar sized cities in, in North America? I would say that this is a Toronto look of the early 2000s, you know, 2000, 2010. It's not a it's not a Toronto look forever, and the aesthetic of buildings is about to change significantly. So, How so? all of the um, requirements for uh, energy performance and energy consumption are being being massively increased. So we're going going to be going from a window, you know, primarily window building to punch windows uh, in wall openings and walls that perform better. Uh, that's being advocated by the city. It's being dictated by the building code. Uh, the mindset of, of people is changing. I mean, I mean you know, in, in Toronto, we've we've had the luxury of very cheap energy, whereas, you know, we always look at places like Germany, for example, that does a great uh, amount of sustainability, but it's it's still pushed by an economic agenda underneath all of the aspirations. Energy there is much more expensive, so they have to find ways to conserve it. You know, here it's very, it's pretty cheap, so we don't, we don't, we're not forced into it. Things like geothermal loops, which are, you know, are a great system for us is it doesn't make sense because because gas is very cheap. So why would we do that? So the Toronto look, I guess, of you said the early uh, maybe tw- uh, 2010 and maybe prior to that is evolving because of um, new regulations that are are being put in place. But if the regulations were were not put in place, would we continue to see more and more of the same? Um, or are um, uh, investors and buyers' tastes starting to change and, and developers' tastes change? No, I think I, we, we would continue to see whatever makes the best value proposition for the, for the building type. So at, at the moment, there's not that many different material options which are uh, which fit within the pro forma of what a building could be. And it's, you know, the, the challenge is we've, we had this... Um, these kind of discussions a, a while ago, before the before the regulations come in place, if you say I'm going to spend twenty dollars extra per square foot on my building to make it better, you're somebody else who doesn't is going to have a, a cheaper product for something that looks the same to the casual observer. So people who say, well, all these buildings look the same, I want something different. We found that their checkbook doesn't have the same opinion as their mouth when push comes to shove. Mm. And how does the city respond to something like that? Well, the city, uh, you know, they've, I mean, they, they've been, I think, Canada, uh, Toronto, maybe, maybe not the whole of Canada, but Toronto specifically is a very risk-averse, uh, conservative place. So people, uh, they want, you know, we, we always have these elections where people win by saying, I'm going to cut your taxes, I'm going to make it cheaper. Maybe that's the same everywhere. But here specifically, we have a lot of municipal underfunding. So the, the city of Toronto uh, doesn't have enough staff to do the work that the city of Toronto needs to do to ensure uh, a robust development pipeline, which will satisfy the supply that's coming. At the same time, I have found in my experience that they also make life very difficult by making a lot of challenging regulations, which take up a lot more time. You know, specifically recently, there's a, a sort of a, an enthusiasm for heritage, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Heritage uh, of nothing, you know, heritage of something that was built 
not that long ago and saying anything that exists near to that heritage is also contributing to heritage. So suddenly we, we constrict the development pipeline. Meanwhile, the whole city economy is being propped up by the development charges. So I'm not sure where that, where that cycle is going to end, but it, but it worries me a little bit because once the, if the, the development pipeline becomes so constrained that the development charge money isn't coming in, because nothing can get realized, which is also very challenging, uh, then property taxes are going to have to go up anyway. But at the same time, all of the infrastructure that wasn't paid for by the development charges that should have been now can't be built because the development charges are still not coming in. It's a very circular argument. I'm not sure if, uh, <laughs> not sure if that was fully. But well, I'm sure as an architect, you, you know, you're not just thinking about the building, but the economics that underlies. Well, we, we do in our, in our business because that's what our, our business is. So our, all of our clients are working in real estate, not only necessarily to make money out of it, but that's always a big part of what they're doing. So they often look, you know, how can I satisfy several objectives uh, with these buildings, one of which is to make money, the other of which is to do great city building, the other one is to leave their mark, is to build a business, you know, all those things. Um, and it's, it's the challenge uh, expressed by all of our developer clients at the moment is, as I don't know if you were at this conference recently, uh, Land Pro conference, uh, Niall Finnegan from Finnegan Marshall did the talk. He said that almost 30% of the money that you're paying for your residential buildings for a condo uh, is going to various taxes and park levies, school charges, all those kind of things. Um, and people don't realize that. So people say all oh, the developers are taking all the money. Most of it's you know not going there. Most of it's going, you know, the biggest portion is going to the city. There's still a profit margin, obviously, um, that yeah. developers are recognizing. Otherwise, the building wouldn't go up. But interesting. But it, it's, 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 there is, of course, a profit margin, uh, which makes sense. But the, the other part of the, the um, city fees is uncertainty. So there's frequently unspecified and difficult to quantify increases coming. So uh, there's been a couple of fairly high profile condo cancellations recently. Um, and because of the, the city's been so busy that the trades are very, you know, very busy. So cost of construction has gone up quite a lot. So that I think that's behind most of them is, you know, you sell it, you sell it three years ago, and it takes you three years to get approvals for something which should take seven months. Uh, and during that time, things have changed. So it's hard to keep up with those economics. And in the same time, all the charges that you're being hit with are also changing. So sometimes the, the pro forma that was made three years ago doesn't make sense anymore. Change. So I just, uh, just quickly, I, I want to ask about the term throwaway buildings, uh, which we heard it was more common a term a few years ago with um, falling glass and a notion that um, uh, floor-to-ceiling windows would lose their thermal cap capabilities over time. Um, has that been addressed, or is that still uh, a concern? Um, I, I mean, for newer buildings, I'm guessing it has been addressed, but it, is it, what about for... Well, the, the falling glass issue, I think, has been addressed through a number of changes to uh, how... Well, that was mostly coming from balconies. So uh, balconies that were changed, so changes to the kind of glass which has to be used, uh, changes to the way that that should be mounted. Um, so I think that's been addressed. In terms of the uh, longevity of the window system, no. I think the I think the sustainability requirements, which we spoke about before, uh, will change the way that the systems are produced. So uh, what I mean by that is um, floor-to-ceiling glazing, the 
traditional format of that is curtain wall, which is a fairly high performance system that you might see on office buildings. In the residential industry, we have a sort of hybrid uh, system called window wall, and that's not quite as robust, uh, has a lot of thermal bridging, and I, I think that will evolve, but it's double the price. So are you gonna, is that cost able to be passed along, or will you just see less of it? Having said that, you know, all, all buildings require maintenance. Uh, the structure is definitely not going anywhere for a long time. Um, you know, even brick needs to be repointed or uh, windows need to be resealed, precast needs to be recalled. So I, don't, I think throwaway is an exaggeration. I think that, you know, the, the balcony railings, like I said, I think that's been addressed. The other things are just maintenance. And uh, getting into now trends that we're seeing or maybe have seen, um, starting with LEED, and LEED I think is, is stands for Leadership in Energy Efficiency Design, is that right? Or maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong there. Leadership in Energy we'll and Environmental Design, I think I should right. know because I have got the uh, LEED the AP accreditation. But <laughs> <laughs> um, is that still something, I mean that, that seemed to be um, front and center for developers' minds and I, maybe for the municipalities and for the public. But I'm not sure if it's as prominent as, as it once was, or is it something that's just standard across uh, the it's, board? It still remains a, a standard in the commercial industry. So office buildings, most of the um, high-profile, centrally located office buildings will need LEED Gold as a, as a standard. So, um, But you know, part of LEED is the actual certification process, which is fairly uh, expensive in itself. So what's what's happened, I would say, more with the residential buildings is there's a Toronto Green Standard Tier 1, uh, and that's equivalent to a kind of lower tier of LEED in itself. There's also a Toronto Green Standard Tier 2, and we frequently pursue that with our, with our projects because there's an economic argument for it, which is a reduction in development charges. So if you can increase the quality and the performance of your building, uh, you can then uh, get a reduction in the development charges, which makes sense. What about other municipalities in the GTA? Say Mississauga or Vaughan, that, Mississauga in particular, that have seen a lot of high-rise uh, buildings. The, uh, the, most of the other, I don't know specifically about municipality, uh, about Mississauga, uh, whether they have a green standard or not, but uh, most of the other municipalities haven't caught up to the city of Toronto. Uh, LEED n never really took hold as a, as a residential um, kind of, uh, strategy and the, the main reason is that um, the main reason is that the people who who are building the buildings are then selling it so they're unable to see the the life cycle benefit so it works well in a rental building because you could say I'm going to put more money in in the beginning because I know in five years all of my energy costs will have increased but that comes back to my uh, people saying that they want something but when it comes time to write to write the check uh, they're you know they, they don't follow through so people won't pay more for a building which they're told will save them money. Hmm. I, I want to um, just get into trends that we're starting to see emerge uh, more and more. And there was a recent announcement by University of Toronto for a 14-story timber building uh, on their campus. And then uh, maybe a few weeks ago, um, George Brown had an announcement for a 12-story timber building called the Arbor uh, down on the waterfront. And I know there are more, and so I just, I want to know, I mean, wood has been around forever, um, so why why now is it only, is it being recognized as an alternative to more conventional materials like concrete and steel? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, 
you know, uh, if you've ever seen my presentation about wood, which I don't think you have, but uh, there's a graphic showing Canada, which has a, a million square kilometers of trees across the top of it. Uh, you know, it's one of the, the biggest resources that the country has. Um, we're, we're doing a, a multi-story wood office building. It'll be the first being built in 100 years in, in Liberty Village. And at the time that we were tendering that wood, it was viable that we might have got the wood from Europe. That's the so the the industry. I don't know why the industry is isn't there. Um, a couple of there was a lot of um, advocating for it. British Columbia was a, was quite a bit ahead of Ontario. Uh, they've been building more wood. Uh, lots of people from Toronto have gone there for tours. We um, we began our, our project uh, uh, probably three years ago, three and a half years ago, um, and decided it was going to be be wood because it gives a unique um, a unique option for. Uh, office tenants, you know, and it's Toronto's got a great history of kind of brick and beam office buildings. So um, all the old warehouses, all the factories, but most of those buildings are kind of converted and filled up now. But they, you know, while they have a fantastic aesthetic, they also have problems which are, you know, brick dust on your desk, uh, you know, poor poor ventilation systems, all of those uh, sort of issues. What we what we did with our project was reinvent that kind of post and beam typology. So it should be finished by the end of the year. Uh, I think it'll be fantastic. The, but because of that and the change to the building code, which it, which enabled that, um, there's become a lot more renewed interest. So there's there's only two companies that make engineered wood in the country, which are one is in British Columbia and the other one is in Quebec. So there's nobody in Ontario able to make the quantity of wood that you need for these kind of multi-story buildings. The um, building code currently permits six stories or 18 meters to the top floor, which in an office building doesn't enable you to get six stories. Uh, those two that you mentioned, the George Brown one and um, the one at University of Toronto, uh, those are both recipients of National Research Council funding uh, or will be recipients of it. Um, and they're going through an alternative solutions uh Kind of process. So, the the Ontario Building Code enables you to do anything you want as long as you can demonstrate that that's going to work. Most people don't use it that way. It's almost entirely used as a prescriptive code. Um, and so those those two projects, I think, are going to be really groundbreaking. I'm, I'm very excited to see how they develop and what what they can what they can do. It's it's going to be a it's not going to be an easy process, though. I would say the 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 regulatory authorities uh, often say that they want something, and one, you know, one side of the group really wants it, uh, but the other side of the group isn't necessarily prepared to ease that passage. And what side of the group is that? What? It, it depends on which group, but you know, for, for zoning, I mean, we, we we were talking about mid-rise earlier. You know, you, you, we we had a talk at the the conference last week about mid-rise. Um, you know, the, the studies are done that say we want six-story mid-rise along the avenues. That's where we want a direct densification. Uh, and that's fantastic. That's great. But when it comes time to actually do that, that process isn't made easy. It takes you two, two plus years to get the approvals to do what the city has said they want. Similarly, with, with the building code, uh, people can't get beyond, uh, often can't get beyond their preconceptions of it's wood, I'm worried about wood. You have no reason to be worried about wood. Cross-laminated timber slabs get three-hour fire rating inherently. All of all of the houses that we live in are built with wood. Uh, having sprinklers puts out the fire at source. It's it's not uh, it's not any more of an issue than it is in a concrete building.
So what is the what is the number one thing that architects are excited about for these um, taller wood frame buildings? Is it is it um, reduction in cost for the overall construction of the building? Is it the look and feel of what it can can offer, um, or are there other reasons? Uh, I don't think it's cost. Actually, actually, I don't. I wouldn't say that the buildings are cheaper inherently. I mean, once this, the system gets into place, they may become a bit cheaper. The the engineered wood is is not. It's actually a bit more expensive. Maybe it's more of a, a Canadian cultural feel. Like you know, we live in a land of trees. We should have buildings made out of trees. Right. Um, you know, wood naturally. The natural qualities of wood are, are very beautiful. They're very tactile. Uh, I, th- I think maybe architects, maybe the, the public, um, the industry is excited because it's something new. You know, mm-hmm. we talked a bit before about innovation and who's innovating, the conservative uh, kind of risk-averse culture. Um, the city of Toronto has changed a lot in the, in the past 10 years. I, I would credit it with, um, I noticed when the OCAD building went up by the uh, recently, the recently the, uh, late uh, Will Alsop uh, and, and others, um, when that went up, there was a bit of a shift in mentality of people. So uh, before that, I found almost entirely Toronto architecture was very dull, even mm-hmm. more risk averse than it is now. Okay. Um, and that's kind of sparked something in people. So I think architects want more. We're seeing recently values have gone up. We're seeing a lot more international architects coming here. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it, it doesn't make a difference. The, we have a fantastic uh, local industry of architects who who can do and have done great work. So I think it's good to good to mix it up and occasionally to insert something new to to spark creativity. Mm. I wanted you, you talked a little bit about mid-rise buildings, and um, you and I met last week at the Land and Development Conference, and you were actually on a panel that talked about mid-rise uh, buildings. Um, in mid-rise buildings, there's a lot of interest, certainly by um, uh, planners who see opportunity for intensifying along main streets, particularly like places like the Danforth um, and the Bloor Line, where you have this existing infrastructure, subway line, yet there's very little going uh, on above it. So you guys have done a number of mid-rise buildings in Toronto already, and having gone through the process, what are some of the pros and cons when thinking about developing a site for a mid-rise building? Well, the the pros are that the the buildings are are very uh, street related. They're very desirable for end users to live in. Uh, you know, some people like to live in high rise. Other people like to live in in condos that are closer to the ground. You know, that are more uh, kind of integrated with neighborhoods, with stores. You know, with with local amenities, and all that. All that's great. And the the city has put out guidelines that say that they want that kind of product. Um, the challenges are really economics, economics driven and exacerbated by other factors, one of which is the approvals process. I just, I just mentioned it, it, it takes too long uh, for, a, for a small building. Ha- spending an extra two years on the project is a, is a deal killer. The other one is the, the division of existing buildings. So if you've got a house, your house is worth a million dollars on one of those main streets. You know, in, in broad numbers, it's probably worth more than that. But say it's worth a million, and to get a viable project, you need eight houses to get a site that's big enough to develop. So you're already in for $8 million before you can even even start. So the kind of the small division of, of housing. So land uh, assembly. Lot. Yeah, land assembly. Right. Land assembly is, is very challenging. Um, the other thing is, I don't know what it is, but there's the same, we seem to have some very serious soil issues. <laughs> soil. In Toronto, yeah. So, you, you know, and it, it sounds funny, but what one of our biggest frustrations as architects is uh, all of the costs that really make the project challenging are things that you don't see. And all of that cost gets stripped out of what you do see. 
So that's the end bit. So by the time you get to the cladding, the really nice finishes that you had on the end, uh, the building's been challenged by delays. Uh, you found an aquifer going through the site. Uh, the soil is uh, some sort of... Um, doesn't have the bearing capacity that you'd expected. Uh, you you went to connect to the water pipe, and it turns out that the the survey was wrong, and the water pipes on the other side of the streetcar tracks. And all of those costs add up, and then you say, well, this beautiful brick that we had, or this fantastic uh, kind of metal finish, those those are too expensive now, so we're going to have to to cut those out. And that that happens frequently, not because of any ill intentions of the client, but just because there's too many unforeseen things. Um, so the the and also the the way that the buildings have to be designed to fit in is very complicated. So you're getting all of the complication, uh, but without any of the tower to amortize the cost. So if you do all of the complicated bits and then you don't have 30 stories of exactly the same easy stuff to, to spread that cost, uh, it makes it a challenge. Yeah, because there there's the tapering effect that the city would like to see for the upper levels in order to allow for sunlight. There's a whole angular plane, and i got to imagine that has an impact on floor design, floor plate design, as you move your way up. Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's a, huge, that's a huge problem. So the, the, the relationship of the street uh, and the scale of the building on the street is, is very important. And on the other side, we have um, all of these single-family residential houses which you know in a, in a way are, are very beautiful in Toronto and you know from our from my office which which you can't see because this is a podcast but from my office I look down on the canopy and you can see how how fantastic that is and how shady um, but those main streets back on to the single-family houses so people living in houses quite rightly don't want to have a eight-story building uh, right next to them so there's a, a requirement for a transition to that and that causes this stepping but when it steps that means the bathrooms need to step the mm-hmm. plumbing needs to step the structure needs to step mm-hmm. so it, be- it becomes very complicated so is that the reason why for like a, a, a transition from uh, mid-rise to low-rise the challenges with the costs below the surface and the challenges in the designing is that why we're just not seeing and the land assembly challenge as well, that we're just not seeing that kind of intensification along these main avenues or corridors that um, that uh, planning policy or policy planners and others would like to see? That's, well, I, I don't know. I mean, when I, I, I hear that we are doing lots of mid-rise, but when I go down these avenues, I don't see it. And this these plans have been in place for 10 years now. So, um, you know, we did, we did a project that took, you know, five years from the beginning. So if you imagine you're only doing an eight-story building and it takes five years, that's a, that's a long time. Um, it's it's really, yeah, speed, efficiency, and economy. So if you can get those things right, like, you know, say you want six stories, make it easy to get six stories. I think, I think it would happen much quicker. Um, but, you know, at the same time, there's, we've got a lot of these avenues and they're very long. It's, it takes a long time to, to create uh, change. So you, you see one pop-up, and then it takes a couple of years, you know, maybe another one pops up another kilometer down the street. So to get it really moving, I think more would need to be done. Tax incentives, ease of approvals, um, I don't know, a, num- a number of things could be done if it was really desirable. But, you know, the, the right hand doesn't always talk to the left hand. Hmm. Okay, well, I want to finish off just by asking um, what buildings, either here or abroad, um, do you look to for inspiration for the kind of buildings you think we should be building more of in our city region? Well, that's uh, that's a very uh, broad 
straightforward question. I mean, there's, there's lots well, I mean, of... I think people ask, people very often ask architects, what's your favorite building? What do. You... Okay, so my, my favorite building is the Institut d'Arabement, the World Arab Institute uh, in Paris by Jean Nouvel. It's uh, what I like about the World Arab Institute, because uh, my French is not good, I'll say it in English, uh, is uh, has a dynamic facade which responds to the sunlight, and it's a museum. It's, a, it's just a very beautiful space. But there's a, there's a lot of fantastic buildings around. You know, one of my favorite architects is Foster and Partners, Norman Foster from the UK. Right. Um, the reason that I like their work is because it's constantly pushing boundaries, mm-hmm. and not only aesthetic boundaries. A lot of a lot of architects concentrate uh, just on objects, on creating objectifying uh, but I don't I don't think that that's that's the path forward for the profession I think it's it's all about performance uh, many projects even you know the, like Ger- the, the, the gherkin one, is the one yeah the at, one at for example that's, so that's that's going to be uh, that's going to be a foster project um, I think you know the, the the firms changed a lot in the past 20 years it used to be a lot smaller and I think the the work that's a, that's a great project uh, and I'm glad to see that kind of innovation there's a huge amount of structural innovation in in that project specifically um, but things like the gherkin which everybody knows I think that's a fantastic project so for those who don't know what the gherkin is maybe you can just describe so where, the gherkin is, is um is an office building for uh Swiss Re uh, reinsurance company in the city of London uh it's shaped like a pickle, mm-hmm. uh, the erotic gherkin, actually, is what it was called at the time. <laughs> right. uh, but there's a lot of uh, a lot about the performance and the way that it responds to the microclimate and the wind, and also um, kind of the the internal climate. And it has a very striking striking form. It was kind of it was the f- the first one really in the city of London that changed the the direction of that. But that's not the only project. The the British Museum uh, enclosure, if you've ever been to the British Museum in London. Uh, is, is one of the most beautiful spaces I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. Having said that, the most beautiful space I've ever been to is the Pantheon in Rome. And I've been there lots of times, and every time I go in, even though it was built 2,000 years ago, it's still a sublime experience. <laughs> okay, so drawing from ancient times to the present, hopefully that, that sort of inspiration will, will, will carry us forward. Uh, Richard, thanks a lot. This has been really interesting. Great, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you.